By the way, the voiceover is from one of our brothers over at the Interbelt Church, Jarvan, right? Is that it, the, the guy's name? And uh, Jarvan does a lot of stuff online for people and is hired out to do that, but he'll be here actually tomorrow. He's a great brother, and we asked him if he'd just do some of the reading for us because he does it so much better than we do, but I really appreciate that. Appreciate all the adults, if you happen to be the audience, and all you small group leaders of the crossings who help provide all the snacks during the daytime. And just, you know, you guys uh, for, for taking the time to do that and for the, uh, the people that bought all that stuff, the church. Want to point all of you also, I, I was going to do this this morning, but I keep forgetting I'm really good at that. We have a couple of book tables over here from Renew. There's some good resources over there. Uh, those guys drive here to provide those for us. Daniel McCoy, uh, who is one of our, uh, a real friend to us here at the Crossings and is so willing to help us. Uh, he is a part of Renew. And so he, I'm sure he has some stuff over there. And then also Dick Clay's got uh, his book on churches without rudders. And I would encourage you to check those out and get them because you need to be armed for what's going on because we are at a point in our culture to where it's very much like the culture that was going on during the time of the letters, the Roman Empire, during the time of the book of Revelation. And so it is super important for you to get that. As you know, our theme is Word Up, and it's because every time in the book of Revelation, after the Holy Spirit speaks through John. He says, to him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he's saying, man, you need to listen up, and you need to listen up, and you need to agree. One of the advantages of going through a seven churches, just going, we're going to go by one by one, is that it provides you an opportunity to do things without a biased way. If you're here and you're feeling like you're picked on, then I would encourage you to just know, we're not picking on you, but the Holy Spirit may be. And he's trying to single you out to help you with some things because he has plans for you. We're talking now about the church at Thyatira. And if you'll, know, if you'll notice on your notes, we're talking about listening to truth and rejecting error. And if you were just here and you heard about Pergamum and, and, and the church that's before it in the book of Revelation, they are not just back-to-back -back in the book of Revelation. They seem to be very much back-to-back -back in their struggles and what they're confronting. And I think we ought to, as we look at them, understand that what they are fighting, almost it is amazing to me when you talk about the doctrines of the Nicolaitans and the things that Jezebel was teaching, the similarities between what was going on then and what was going on, what's going on in our culture. And in that day, those people who had the doctrines of the Nicolaitans, the, no, the doctrines of Jezebel, the doctrines of, of some other things that you can read about in 1 John a little bit, one of the marks of them is that they believed that they were superior, that they somehow were more enlightened, that they were wiser, that they were woke, that they knew better. That's why at the end of the verses, just that Jarvan was reading out of Revelation, he says, for those of you who have not given in to the secret mysteries of, uh, uh, that were going on, that's a description of the sort of the superior thing. You guys just don't know. You're not enlightened. You're not aware. And so the similarities are absolutely amazing. And over and over again, the cure for them is not to freak out. The cure is not to just worry, but the cure is to make sure that we are doing some things that the scriptures teach because we are promised victory. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about. And in Revelation chapter 2, there is a tremendous emphasis, as is throughout through all the scripture, on hearing and embracing truth. So if you're here and maybe you're going, man, truth obviously runs counter to the culture. Truth runs counter to what you may like personally. Why should I do it? Let me just fly through just a few things, and I could have came up with a dozen of these, but some of the promises that are associated with holding to the Word of God and holding to truth. Why should you do it? Well, number one, because hearing truth enables me to be free. 
And when I talk about hearing, I'm not talking about having audible sounds go through your ear canal to your inner ear. When my dad was, was alive and I was a kid, I would not take the trash out sometimes. And we'd be sitting there and I'd go through and dad said, hey, son, I told you to take that trash out. And I would sometimes ignore him because I was really a rebellious kid and I was really lazy. And so later on, we'd be, he'd be sitting there and he'd say, son, did you hear me to tell you to take that trash out? He was not asking me if I had received the audible tones in the English language. What he was saying is, are you listening to me? Are you getting this? Are you doing what I'm talking about? So when we talk about hearing truth, we're talking about embracing truth. We're about talking about saying, that's going to be rule for my life. And in Scripture, hearing truth, one of the things it does, it enables me to be free. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, the Bible says, Jesus is speaking. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you're really my disciples, then, the, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, in that verse, he lets us know that, listen, the mark of a disciple, not one that I've created, but one that Jesus says, if you want to know if you're a disciple, then here, are you holding to my teachings? And he says, if you are holding to me, you're going to hold to them, and you're going to discover what's true, and it's going to liberate you. It's going to set you free. Contrary to what the culture says, that it's going to oppress you, a lie oppresses us, and the truth sets us free. Embracing truth also enables me to be saved. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, the Bible says, As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We're always thankful that God shows you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that comes through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. And when he talks about belief, it's not the idea of just an intellectual acknowledgement that even that it is from God, but their faith in God is so strong that it allows them to have a faith in the Word. And those two things ought to go together in the same way that the Spirit and truth go together in Scriptures. When I have faith in God, it should lead me to trust His Word. And He says, when that happens, that enables you to be saved. Not only does, this, does embracing truth enable me to be saved, Embracing truth enables me to lead others to salvation. Paul tells Timothy, be careful in your life and in your teachings. Continue to live and teach correctly or rightly. Then you'll save both yourself and those that you're teaching. Here's the thing. You may sympathize with somebody and want to compromise on truth. But when you compromise on truth, you compromise their ability to be saved. When we see this idea of grace as something that just means acceptance rather than proclamation of truth in a kind way, we endanger our salvation and others' salvation. Embracing truth also, the Bible teaches, enables me to be set apart for a holy purpose. In John 17, 17, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he says he's praying to his Father about his disciples, and he says, sanctify them. And this is the amplified version, by the way. So the Amplified Vision gives you the word, and then it gives you some of the nuances of that word. Sanctify them, purify, consecrate, set them apart for yourself. Make them holy by, your, by truth. And then he says, by the way, how do you know truth? Your word is truth. Sociologists will tell you that one of the greatest human needs is for you to have a purpose for living. That you can live without a lot of things, but you can't live without hope and purpose. And the Bible says that the way that God gives you that purpose, some of you are saying, I just don't know my purpose. I just feel aimless. I don't feel like I have a reason to exist. 
The problem may be that rather than embracing the authentic truth of Jesus, you're lost in your own opinion. But whenever you embrace truth, it will lead you on a journey to purpose that's incredible. There are some of you here this weekend that came in and you thought your purpose was to show up at church on Sunday. You thought your purpose was to be in group on Wednesday night. And what you're finding is that your purpose is to represent Jesus in a way that lost souls are saved, that heaven will be populated and new churches will be planted and broken people will be healed and cycles of abuse will be stopped because all of a sudden, you rather than buying into a shaded view of truth, you just said, I'm going to embrace truth, period. But it's also, embracing truth also enables me to have the power to fulfill my purpose. For some of you, you want to do that stuff. You, Man, I'd like to help like that. You're as messed up as I was whenever I was your age. And you think, I'd love to do that, but I just can't do it. God has a purpose. It's so frustrating when somebody gives you a purpose that you don't think you can fulfill. But it's through the embracing of truth, not only that I am set apart for a purpose, it's through the embracing of truth that I am empowered to fulfill that purpose. If you look on, your, look on the screen in 2 Timothy 3, 5, and 8, the Bible says this. He says, they will hold to an outward form of religion. Now, he's talking about a, people who go to church, and they experience some degree of godliness. Some degree, the word holiness means to be set apart. In a religious context, it means to be set apart for a noble purpose. So when God says, I'm going to sanctify you, he's got some, a big deal for you. You know, there's a cup that sets on your, on your, on your, and probably in some of your houses that's just like the cup that served royalty at one time. That cup that you have is worth nothing, but that cup that served royalty because of its purpose may have incredible value on the auction market. So there's this incredible noble purpose that God has for you. And Satan wants you to believe a lie. He doesn't want you to buy into it. And he'll lie to you in a billion different ways because he doesn't want you to be sanctified. He doesn't want you to know your purpose. And if he shows you the purpose, he'll get you to compromise to where you just have a limited view of acceptance. You're going to choose truth when you want it, and you're going to choose what you want when you don't. And he's describing then, Timothy, Paul's describing to Timothy a group of people in the church that's like that. He says they hold to the outward form of religion. They have an outward form. And by the way, that outward form of religion, the original word connects it. It's like he's saying they have an outward form of set-apartness. They have an outward form of holiness. But it's all about the outside. And quite frankly, God doesn't care about your outside. He's a cardiologist, not a cosmetologist, okay? He's worried about what's on the inside of you. And so he says these people, they may look good, they, form, they, have, they hold to the outward form of our religion, but reject its real power. Now, he goes on to describe some of the other things that they do, some things that they get involved that are just obviously wrong and ungodly. They were talking about people who are hypocritical because they will not buy into truth. They're picking and choosing, and when they won't buy into truth, they're left powerless. So he says they reject the real power, keep away from such people, these people are opposed to truth. You see, when I am opposed to truth, I will remain unpowered. Falsehood and false teaching is to your spiritual ended like engine. It's like having water in your gas tank. It's like having a short in your wiring in your house. It's shade on your solar panel. 
It robs you. It's a virus in your body that may allow some form of existence, but it doesn't allow you, allow you to have the power that God wants to. And so this powerless people could have been incredibly powerful. It wasn't about their ability or their inability. It was about their refusal, their willingness to embrace truth. And so as we go through this, it's really important that we grasp what's going on. This morning, Jonathan, before he got sick, and uh, he was very, very sick, you know, and so right as he came, got up, he came over, and I, I came up and cried him from behind, and turned around and said, hey, Jonathan. And he said, yeah. I said, don't die, okay? I, that was pretty important. I need you to finish this, okay? So we're praying that he lives, doesn't go to heaven until at least tomorrow after his keynote. But he talked about the church at Ephesus, and Satan's strategy to destroy the church at Ephesus, Ephesus was to destroy their love for God. But Satan's strategy to destroy, to destroy the church at both Pergamum and Thyatira was to destroy their love for truth. And some people believe that you can love Jesus and not love the truth. You know the problem with that? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't love Jesus and reject the truth of Jesus. So as we look at this church, I want to give you guys some steps, some, some, some choices that you can make. Some choices that you can make to make sure that you are embracing truth. Four choices that, you can, that, that can help you listen to truth and reject error. Number one, you need to choose to respect and revere the truth. Now, as I say that, Wes was up here and he said, we don't worship the truth. And honestly, I had respect in that in that. Uh, blank. I'd had to revere initially, and I thought, man, I don't want to teach people that we just sort of bow down and worship the Bible. But there is a sense that we have to have a submission, a bowing down to the teachings in the Word of God because they are the words of God. And when you had a representative of God or a representative of a king throughout much of, uh, of the Old Testament or New Testament times, if you had a representative for the king that was sent to talk to you, if you didn't bow down before the representative, it showed a disrespect for the king himself. And I would suggest to you that we've got to have a higher degree of respect and almost reverence for the truth. To where we're not going to mess with it. We're going to go, man, this is a holy thing. I'm not going to go counter. I'm not going to do anything to disrespect it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I'm bowing down to it. If you notice in Revelation 2, verse, the next verse there, Revelation 2, verse 18, he begins by saying this, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right, these are the words of the Son of God. Now, I understand I'm not talking about worshiping a Bible. But I'm telling you, I have known moms who have lost their children. And I've watched moms cry and weep as they hold a letter over them because these were the last words of their son that they'll never see again until they get to heaven. I've watched them mourn as they read the words, longing to be able to have some form of communication, but the very tears that they shed show a respect for the individual who wrote them. And so he says, these are the words of the Son of God. 
It's not just the words of anybody. It's not my opinion. It's not the author's opinion. None of the writing of scriptures, Peter tells us, were formed in human opinion, but by the will of God. These are the words of God whose eyes are like brazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He's saying this is the one who can see all and in all the mess he can walk with royalty, strength, and dignity through the fires that are going on around you. But you need to know these are not words to ignore. If you'd go back up in the chapter, one of the first verses that, that uh, Wes read, it said in Revelation 2, 12, he says, as he writes to the church previous, he says, these are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword, a sword that could use to cut and to penetrate. It could do things surgically to heal, or it could do things in associated with war that would destroy And the message is that, listen, these are the words of the one who longs to save you But if you reject these words, you will end up losing. If you will not let him surgically change your thoughts and your worldview, then he will come and he will overwhelm your worldview. Over and over again, we see that emphasis on the word in Hebrews chapter 4. For God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts as deep as uh, the place where the soul and spirit met. God's word judges a person's thoughts and intentions. I mean, we're talking about something God says, listen to it, because this is a thing that can go all the way to your heart. If you're here and you have a background that you've had abuse, if you've had dysfunction, if you have had things like that happen in your life, those negative things have impact. And they don't just impact the smile on your face, although they may do that. They don't just impact the way that you might view yourself when you look in a mirror. They impact your very soul, right? And he says, you need to listen to this truth because it is the only thing that can go down so deep is to take those things that make you feel like you will never be able to make it. That word of truthfulness will acknowledge that those things are wrong, but it will also help remove those things so you can be right and he will be able to use you. But in 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes to Timothy and says, listen, a time's coming when people no longer listen to right teaching. And here's the thing, when you don't listen to right teaching, the number one issue is not the difficulty of the Scripture. It's the desires that you have to do what you want to do. For a time's coming when people no longer listen to right teachings, they'll follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear. They'll reject the truth and follow strange myths. I am blown away by the strangeness of some of the things that are taught in our culture now. Aren't you? I mean, how have we got to the point where we are? If you would have told me 30 years ago that some of the things that are commonly accepted within our high schools, our, our junior highs, our high schools, and our colleges would not only be talked about by, by the students, but would be taught by the teacher. I'd go, you're out of your mind. But never underestimate how far Satan can take you when you desire something other than what God wants. And I'm telling you, sin always hurts you more than you would think it would and takes you farther and deeper than you would think it would. In 2 Thessalonians 2.10, the Bible says, the work of Satan will be displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. He goes, Satan's going to be there doing these miracles, and you're going to look and go, how did they do that? I look at what's going, how could that be? But he says, here's the thing. Satan is at work, and the ultimate desire that he has is to deceive you. 
And however Satan works, it does not work unless he can deceive you. Every sin that you involve yourself in, you involve yourself in because somewhere you have believed a lie of Satan. I mean, I promise you that. You will not get involved in sin unless somehow Satan lies to you and convinces you of something that it's okay when God said it wasn't. So he says he is trying to, 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 to deceive those who are perishing. Now notice what they say. Well, how do I stop from that, that from happening? He says they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You want to guarantee that you're not overwhelmed by Satan taking places that you would never imagine, then have a deep respect and love, a reverence for the truth. Second choice you can make to help you, help you uh, listen to truth and reject error. I choose to refuse to tolerate false teaching. I'm just not going to tolerate it. That doesn't mean I have a sign that I'm, Trump, that I'm carrying around, that I'm opposing it in the world, but I without a doubt will refuse to allow it to live in my heart or in my mind. In Revelation 2.20, he writes to the church at Thyatira, I have this against you. They've got a lot of good stuff, amazing stuff. But what he knows is that truth that is rejected becomes a seed through which Satan will attack the roots of the church. I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching she misleads my servants. We live in a day, excuse me, where tolerance is the grandest of virtues, right? And intolerance is the gravest of sins. And again, I want you to know that we're not talking about being rude, obnoxious, unkind, and offensive simply because we don't like something. We don't have to be offensive over things we won't like, we don't like, because if we're God's, we're going to be offensive over things he doesn't like. But if you just look at the book of Revelation, let's just stick in chapter 2. There are four churches that are written to in Revelation chapter 2. You have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And if you were to go doubt them, Ephesus is praised for its intolerance. Smyrna is praised for its intolerance. Pergamum is condemned for its tolerance. And Thyatira is condemned for its tolerance. So in a really clear thing in the Word of God in one chapter, you can find that there is no holy value of tolerance, and it would appear that there's a holy value placed upon intolerance. And somehow we have bought into the lie that we need to be tolerant, that we need to say, it's okay, come on in. And he knows that we shouldn't tolerate something that is destructive to the lives and the souls of those who are within your church or within your ministry. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says, anyone who does not stay with the teachings of Christ but goes beyond it does not have God. Whoever does not stay with the teachings Whoever does stay with the teachings has both the Father and the Son. So that if someone comes to you who does not bring this teaching, do not welcome him or her in your homes. Don't even see, say, peace be with you. Peace was a hippie movement, right? You know, peace, and what it meant back then, it was an opposition to war, but it was also an opposition to truth. Peace, it was a sign of saying, hey, everything's cool, and everything's not cool. 
And the, value, the, the, the teaching that he is saying cannot be tolerated is a teaching that you ought to tolerate anything in the name of grace or in the name of Jesus. You're not called to be tolerant. You're called to be kind and truthful. And so you have to call, you have to choose to have a respect and a reverence for the truth, believing that it is the words of life. You have to choose to refuse to tolerate false teaching, believing that it will destroy you. In Titus 1.9, the Bible says about a man of God, he must be devoted to, trustworthy, to the trustworthy message we teach. Talking about leadership. And a leader is only, the best leaders are only the best followers. He must be devoted to trustworthy message we teach. Then he can use these accurate teachings to encourage people and correct those who oppose the word. We've got to have somebody that is standing up for truth and refusing to tolerate error because it is the key to being able to teach the rest of our world what really matters. Thirdly, if I'm going to listen to truth and avoid error, I choose to realize the cost of compromise. He says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, so I'll cast her on a bed of suffering and I'll make you, those who commit adultery with her, suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I'll strike her children dead. Now, he's not saying that he's going to make them have sex with Jezebel. What he's saying is, you're adulterers because if you buy into the teachings of Jezebel, you have committed adultery to me. In the book of James, the Bible says that you're for, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. He says that. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God, but he starts by saying, you adulterous people, don't you know? He's not talking about they're having sex with somebody. He says, you're being unfaithful to me. Adultery is an act of unfaithfulness to your mate. Adultery spiritually is an act of unfaithfulness to your God, and to reject his truth is unfaithfulness. I've got to make this decision to understand it whenever there's intolerance, whenever, whenever I, when I embrace error, there's a cost that's there. He says, I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. God pulls back, and if you notice in the, the church before again that Wes was talking about with, with Pergamon, he says, I have this double-edged sword, which the Bible says to the group of Hebrews is a really good thing. It's the Word of God. It divides, it cuts. It can help you out so much. But the context in Pergamon is that he's using this sword to fight against you. It's when your master, if you're in the martial arts, my son and my daughter were both in the martial arts. And it's strange because the same skill that allows them to be taught and trained when they were fighting against the master that was there, it enabled them to get better. But if you ask any student of a truly skilled and powerful master if they would like to fight against him, what they know is the answer is no because it means defeat. And all of a sudden, the God that was our ally now becomes a God who views us as enemies. The God who wanted to give us everlasting life and comfort becomes the one who is casting us on a bed of suffering because he's trying to wake us up. And I've watched God as he disciplines people, as they ignore his word and experience the consequences. I know God is always longing for a return, and sometimes the only time they'll return is when they feel the pain. I don't think Marlon's in here. Marlon Newby grew up in my house from the time he's in sixth grade. He's like a son to me. And he walked away from God when he's, I don't know, somewhere right after high school. 
And for years he was away, and I know Carrie had talked to him. He was Carrie's best friend. He'd say, hey, Marlon, come on, what are you doing? Got nowhere with him at all until Marlon got busted for doing drug deals. He'll be here tonight. He's one of our youth leaders. And we say drug deals. We're not talking about little drug deals, okay? The DEA in, uh, in uh, Illinois said, Marlon, we didn't even have you on our, on, your, on our radar. We got a lot of drug dealers that we thought were big time, but we didn't have you on our on our." On our you know, our, our radar. I'm not talking about the, the selling of a, you know, of a bag of, of a pot. I'm, we're talking $250,000 and $300,000 cash transactions. Holding, giving somebody a quarter million dollars for their drugs. And it was only when he got busted and he went to jail. And I remember when he went to jail going, Hallelujah. Now, my wife, she's a little sympathetic. She goes, I don't want to go to jail. I don't want him. Because he's facing 30 to 50 initially, by the way. I said, I don't want him to go free because he needs to know there's a cost for rejecting Jesus and the truth. You see, what he, God says is, I know some of you, I want you saved, and some of you aren't going to ever respond because you see the light. But you will respond when I make you feel the heat. What's that look like? It might be getting pregnant when you're 17 years old and you don't know what you're going to do. It might be impregnating somebody. All of a sudden, all your plans are over. It might be a divorce that you thought, man, this is really cool. This is a woman I want to be with forever until you found out she doesn't want to be with you. That's what happened with Carrie's other best friend, James. He found his God and she was cute until she wasn't. Well, she was cute until he wasn't. And somebody cuter came along. There is always a consequence to sin. And the Bible says, don't deceive yourself. Listen to me. You, don't deceive yourself. God's not mocked. Oh, I got by with that. I'm getting away with that. No, you're not. You may be the best con artist. You may fool your, youth, fool your youth leader. You may fool your friends. You may fool your parents. I got news for you. God will never let you just get by with it. You ever, we either will be forgiven or sentenced. And you get to choose which. But you need to know there is a consequence. In Revelation 2, 16, he says, Likewise, you have also hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, as he talks about the previous church. He says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I must come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. God is ready to fight against you. There's an old poem that begins with the words, Young man, young man. But it could be young woman, young woman. But the original poem said, young man, young man, your arms are much too short to box with God. And they are. In 2 Peter 3, 14, the Bible says, but part of what he says, he's talking to, to Peter, he's, talking, he's saying, you know, part of the scriptures is hard to understand. Some ignorant and unstable people even destroy themselves by twisting what he said. They twist the truth and make it a lie. They do the same thing with all of their scriptures, too, and it's not on here, but what it then says next is they do it to their own destruction. You will never reject truth and embrace error and somehow not damage yourself. You may not believe that now, but as someone who was an avid rejecter of truth and thought he would get by with it, I can promise you it's not true. So how do I make sure I can listen to truth and reject error? I choose to revere and respect truth. I choose to refuse to tolerate false seeing. I choose to realize the cost of compromise. And I choose to remember the benefits of conviction, of holding my guns. 
To the one who is victorious, the one who has fought this battle with truth and error and ends up holding on to truth. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I'll give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I've received authority from my Father. I'll also give the one, the morning star, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the church says. We don't have time to go, time to go into the, all of the imagery of that. But what he is appealing to is going, remember you were made to feel stupid because you didn't know all these secret mysteries? You were just dumb and unenlightened. It is, you were asleep while they were enlightened and woke. And they made you feel stupid, and there were times that you wondered, is this true? Am I really just, have I missed the boat? Am I oh, just stuck to old times? He goes, there's going to come a time when all that illusion is going to be destroyed, and you are going to be the one who stands victoriously. They are the pot, and you are the one who shattered it. You will be shown victorious, and it will be amazing. I spoke and said earlier just a moment ago that I embraced error and rejected truth. And I nearly destroyed my life by the time I was 16 years old. Literally set myself on a course that was incredibly difficult to steer back from. Insecure, wanting to prove myself, wanting to make sure that I looked strong, that I looked masculine. And I about destroyed myself, and I never thought I would measure up. And the weird thing is, as I embrace truth, I have come to find that some of the people that I was so desiring to be accepted by, their lives lay shattered in a pile of rubble. And mine is a tapestry of grace and beauty that points to my creator, what he's done in my life, what he's doing in my life, and the ultimate promise for my eternal life. There is a consequence for embracing truth, and there is a payoff. For, there's a consequence for embracing and accepting her, and there's a payoff for embracing truth. For me, it is my church. It is my marriage. It is my kids. It is my grandkids. It's my life. I get to be at a seminar all Lester was at the seminar and I got to hear the speakers last night. Everybody's having a good time. The worship was romping at nine o'clock. My grandson had a basketball game, so after that we ran up to his basketball game and I got to watch him play God, knowing play ball, knowing that in a couple of weeks, two or three of the guys from his team will probably be at camp with him that he's reaching out to. And I just look at my my I look at my grandchild. I go, man, what a great day! I was busy from the moment it started to the moment that it ended, and I went to bed. I got a call from Carrie telling about the good time that they had at Gingham's last night. So at 11.30 or 12 o'clock, we're talking, and wasn't this awesome? And then it was good night. And there's difficulties in that life, but I can let you know there's no place where there's not difficulties. There's no place like the kingdom where the king is yours and you've trusted his truth. So let me encourage you guys, embrace truth and never, never compromise and embrace error. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for everybody that's here, God. I just look at a, at a bunch of uh, young people and some other older people there too, you know, God. But we are here and we are yours. And Father, I pray that we will wrap our heads around truth so much so and trust you so much that we trust your words. In business and stuff, they do trust falls. 
And it's a way of saying, do you trust the person? Okay, fall back if you do. Fall now. And if you trust, you obey. And it's weird because the same thing is true in Scripture. Biblical saving, life-changing faith have always been one that says, I will trust and obey. And not even in two separate kind of ways, but almost in an amalgam that makes one whole of authentic faith. And Father, when we trust you like that, we obey. And it is in obeying you that we find blessings. Jesus said, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Father, help us to do them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.